Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Reverend Steve Andrews. Today's text is from Zechariah chapter 5 and brings us the sixth and seventh visions that Zechariah receives in the night from the angel of Yahweh, that is, the messenger, divine messenger, Jesus Christ. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is twenty cubits, and its width ten cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares Yahweh of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. This is the word of the Lord. Today we have two visions, so again six and seven out of the eight, that are both about judgment. We have again the pattern that the first and the last visions on the outer ends, one and eight, are about God being in control of everything. Second and seventh, so as you move inward, Judah as a nation, not any longer, but Judah under Persian control. Three and six, as you move in again, are about Jerusalem, and four and five were about the temple of God. So we've moved past the temple, that was yesterday, and we're backing away bit of a more zoomed out level. So Jerusalem and then the people in contrast to Babylon. So as we start here with the sixth vision, really this whole chapter is is God calling the people away from their sins. Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, are going to have the responsibility to call the people to truly worship Yahweh and to return to the covenant that he has made with his people, that he would be their God, they would be his people, and talk about the Ten Commandments and the laws to be followed. Reed Lessing, Dr. Lessing, in his commentary on this from the Concordia Commentary series, said, If the sins are not eradicated, the new Jerusalem will be no different than the old Jerusalem. This is true and unfortunately also happens. The sin will continue It does not get eradicated. It's not driven out like it was supposed to, just like the Israelites didn't drive out all the pagan worshipers from the promised land. They let them stay. 
when we get to the time of the New Testament, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, laments over Jerusalem because they, well, instead of listening to God, they have rejected him and they have even killed his prophets. So the same thing happens. Rome will destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's not really our purpose of this text, though, not our context. Ultimately, yes, it does point us to our failure to keep the law and to the need for Christ. That picture of forgiveness is going to come uh, later. We have to get to chapter 7 for that. But for now, it's very much law and judgment-oriented in the text today. There is a movement then from chapter 4 being the temple, Yahweh's house, to now chapter 5 being judgment in the house of the people. So from from Yahweh's house to the people's homes. As we look at this, we have a flying scroll, the flying scroll representing the Lord's word. And its length, 20 cubits with 10 cubits, that's intriguing. You're welcome to search your Bible for those two measurements, 10 cubits, 20 cubits. A cubit is 18 inches roughly, so this is 30 feet and 15 feet. It seems to connect to the most holy place. So in the tabernacle or the temple, two rooms were inside. You had the holy place, which was where the priest could go and minister before the Lord and take care of the bread on the table of the presence, take care of the altar of incense, the golden lampstand. Those were daily duties. But the most holy place in the inside, even further, was only visited once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, and it housed just the Ark of the Covenant, the very throne of God himself. And this seems to fit this, because the tabernacle, so the the temporary portable house of God before they came to the Promised Land, the most holy place was ten cubits, cubed, ten cubits wide, long, and tall. In the temple, the more permanent structure, the most holy place would be 20 cubits wide, long, and tall. So cubical in shape again. And cubic? <laughs> anyway, the the picture here then would be that this scroll is connected to God's word, connected to his throne, just as he promised when they were first building the tabernacle that he would speak to his people from his throne. So he's speaking. He is speaking words of judgment, words of rebuke, that there is a curse upon those who do not keep the law. So it is with the Old Testament covenant. You can find in Deuteronomy chapter 27, 28, for example, the list of curses that will fall upon the people if they don't keep God's law. And ultimately, this is why Jesus comes, is to be the curse for us, to become the curse for us, which is how Paul phrased it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus became a curse for us. Specifically, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the curse, the the punishment for sin goes out upon the land. Those who steal, seventh commandment, are written on one side, Those who swear falsely are written on the other side, so might be related to the Eighth Commandment about bearing false witness. Uh, Certainly connects, though, forward 
to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus forbids all swearing, all taking of oaths. The picture of it being written on both sides, this scroll, that means it's in its fullness. The law is full. Revelation 5 has a scroll uh, that is written within and on the back, so written on both sides. That is, there is no more room to write anything more additional. The text is full, and that scroll, contrary to this one, this one is a scroll of God's word for judgment, that scroll was a word from God for salvation. In fact, we would say that that scroll of Revelation 5 is the plan of God for our salvation, and that it's in its fullness, completeness, it can't be added to, it can't be taken away from, and Jesus opened it and revealed his plan of salvation to us. So God is going to send his judgment into the house of the thief and the false swearer. This reminds me of the Exodus account, the tenth and final plague, where we're not really told uh, traditionally, a lot of people say it's an angel that God sends to be the one who destroys uh, the firstborn son in every house in Egypt. could be God himself. The text doesn't specify. If anything, you would lean towards Yahweh himself in the text. But either way, Yahweh or his angel by his command entering the house to, to destroy. And that's what we see here, that the law, the judgment of God, is going to enter into the homes of sinners for judgment. And it doesn't go away. It will consume that house, timber and stone. The judgment is coming. None can escape. So eradicate sin from among you. Like the Exodus account with the Passover and removing all the leavened foods from your house, remove sin from your house. A little leaven leavens the whole lump as a a New Testament warning of of that nature as well. A question for the family to consider today, what do we do after we've sinned? That gives you the opportunity to talk about repentance, confession, absolution, the, the gift of forgiveness that comes in Christ. That we don't wait for God's judgment to come upon us because in Christ we know that we are forgiven. That brings us to vision number seven, uh, the vision of a woman in a basket. This one's a little closer for me because uh, my seminary days, intramural sports that we played, we had teams, and they're always supposed to be biblical themes. And so one year it was something from the prophets that you were supposed to use as your team name, and my team's captain used the woman in a basket phrase. So we were woman in a basket for a year. Interesting. <laughs> team name. Anyway, um, once again, it's Jesus who speaks to Zechariah, the angel messenger, divine messenger of God, the angel of Yahweh. Something's going out. It's a basket that is going out. The basket contains within it all the iniquity of the land. That is all the sin of the people of God in Judah. And so Zechariah looks on, the basket is covered by a cover made from lead. Now, this contrasts very nicely with the things of God in the temple. Temple tabernacle alike, if you look at the blueprint and design of their construction, either late Exodus book there or the uh, book of 1 Kings, chapter 6, 7, 8, 
that region. As you're looking at those texts, you'll notice that the closer you are to the throne of God, to the Ark of the Covenant, the more gold there is. And as you move farther away, you slowly transition from gold to silver. If you move further away from that, you transition from silver to bronze. And here we are lead. So gold, silver, and bronze were all precious metals. Uh, Bronze not worth nearly as much, nor is it today. Lead was considered pretty much worthless in that point in history. So you move from the precious things that are the closest to God to a completely opposite end of this spectrum, to lead, which again, worthless, and so it's connected to sin. This basket is not holy, it is the opposite. It is of no good, it is of no value, so it's going to be gotten rid of. Now we see a couple of things here. As the lid comes off, there's a woman in the basket sitting there. So not not a teeny tiny basket, a basket of decent size. And Jesus says, this is wickedness. The woman, identified here as wickedness, puts her back in the basket, closes the lid. Now, a couple of notes on this. Not to say all women are wicked, no different than men, we're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3. But there are some connection points that we can make. We can look at Eve in Genesis chapter 3, who is supposed to love and care for her for God's creation and serve her husband by helping him to care for God's creation. And instead, she seeks to undermine creation, and she seeks to undermine her husband, Adam, and take his role. That's part of the curse, and women have been seeking to take the role of their husband ever since. Solomon's wives, 1 Kings chapter 11. I just say he has a thousand. There's 700 and 300 One is wives, one is concubines. Concubines are lesser wives. He's got a thousand wives. And by 1 Kings 11, we see that they have led him astray. Solomon, the wise king, has built altars for his wives to worship their false gods. This is not good. Solomon's heart is led astray. He's described as not being wholly faithful to Yahweh as his father David was before him. And then we can think of Revelation chapter 17 to the, the great prostitute, which is the second beast. So Satan calls forth two beasts, one from the, the sea and one from the earth, to help him fight against the church to try to kill the individual Christians and strip us from our faith. The first beast is the political beast. The second beast is the religious beast. Sometimes earthly governments and false prophets and false teachers work together to attack Christians. Sometimes they fight against each other. They can't even get along. We see that in lots of different ways, not really our text here, just pointing out that that second beast, the religious beast, is the one that come Revelation 17 is described as the prostitute or the harlot, depending on your English translation there. The other note that I want to point out here is from 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 7, where Athaliah, who is, I guess you would call her queen, uh, she has destroyed her entire family. After the death of her son, she rose up and she killed the royal family so that no one was there to challenge her, her for her throne. She doesn't realize that uh, there is a child, 
Joash, who's yet a baby that is hidden from her for, I believe it was seven years. Anyway, as Athaliah reigns, what does she do? She brings the land, plunging it deep into the depths of idolatry. She takes the temple of Yahweh and turns it into a pagan place, using all the utensils that were to be used to serve God to serve instead the Baals. And she herself, again, Second Chronicles 24, verse 7, is referred to as that wicked woman. So that's a great connection to make to this phrase here. The idea of this wickedness, the iniquity of the land, is their idolatry, it is their pagan worship, and it is being stripped away. It's being removed. I mean, remember the picture that God describes himself as husband and that Israel is his, then in that case, bride. The New Testament language, Jesus is the groom. We as the church are his bride. So committing adultery against God is to worship false gods, to have other gods besides him, breaking that first commandment. So idolatry is the the focus. Idolatry is the aim. Again, we don't, I don't want to just throw women under the bus. This is not a text that really should be used in that manner. Although, again, we have those prominent examples from Scripture, and we can see it within our own cultures and our own households. But we are all wicked. We all have trouble obeying the first commandment and putting God first above all things. That's more the focus that I would go with here. And as we continue then, we see two women coming forward who have wings, and they're going to carry away this basket. So the basket is judged, it is banished, it is cast out. Who are the two women? I honestly didn't see much in the commentaries I was looking at on that. So you could take this, I think, perhaps in a couple of ways, probably more than that, but one would be to look at it as I was just describing, uh, the idea that the church is the bride of Christ. So we have the wicked woman in the first part of this text, and then we move to the bride of Christ seeking to remove sin from within itself, as the church was to purge sin. Old Testament, New Testament, church, both. I mean, I guess you could phrase it that way as the two women, the the wives of Christ, the bride of Christ, that they were to cleanse the land, cast out all the pagan peoples from the land so you don't worship false gods. And we ourselves, uh, we are not to worship others. We know these things to be true. Another possibility, though, is that these women are not seen positively. So you see it positive as the the church carrying away the, the sin and getting rid of it from the land, The negative side would be to look at these as those who would rather worship these pagan gods than worship God. So they take flight. They leave Jerusalem and they go to Babylon to worship there the way they want to. I think that's a possibility as well. Uh, The idea here being that this pagan god's worship, which... The woman in the basket represents all of that. Again, the idolatry, the wickedness of the people, that they can build a temple in Babylon in the land of Shinar, which is a reference to that that region we usually think of as Babylon in the Old Testament days. They can build that there and they can pray to their false god and worship how they please. Uh, So rather than remain faithful to Yahweh, stay in Jerusalem, worship him at his temple, there indeed will be those, including many Jews who never returned from the exile, who would instead 
remain part of and worship. At that point, you're transitioning to Persia, but these false gods. Now, I think a family conversation, again, is this is a judgment text. So we had the first, what do we do after we sinned? Now, why doesn't God cast out us sinners? Like he banished sin from Judah here. Why doesn't he banish us? And that's going to get your family conversation around the judgment day and what Christ has done. Very much like the courthouse image that we had in chapter 3's vision that we come before the, the Lord on Judgment Day. Satan seeks to accuse us, but Christ has taken our sins to the cross. They are removed from us. We are forgiven. And Satan's accusations no longer have any power over us. We are free in Christ.